Welcome to episode 341 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony, and we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. We're back at it again. We're talking more about the 10 words, and we're moving into number seven in this conversation, which, you know, I was thinking as I was just preparing for this, and by that I mean when I was plugging in the microphone, that this has just been an amazing series in part because of both the weightiness and the great depth of what these 10 words require of us, and how all the topics are just in some ways hard and in other ways lovely. There's is this really strange confluence of God's amazing grace toward us in these 10 words and also his very hard and explicit commandments to us, of course, in these 10 words. So I'm getting to this point where there was almost a little bit of like exhaustion and it's another topic that is of great depth. And of course, all theology has some depth to it, but this cuts across us in a more direct way if we allow it to. And more than ever, I sense in our conversations where we're really, by the time we're done, we've been, of course, read and evaluated by the text rather than the other way around. So if people are feeling that way a little bit, and of course, we're about to talk about adultery, if you are tracking at home with what the seventh word is, then you might feel that sense coming for you as well. And so I think I want to say we recognize that too. We hear it. These are big topics, weighty topics, important topics, but we find I think at the end, both this exhaustion in that every kind of meritorious impulse that we have comes up empty and the glory of God continues to shine forth brightly in these 10 words, in part because of how he redeems his people to them through Jesus Christ. So hopefully it's a little bit encouragement. It's a little bit conviction. It's everything all together. It's that jambalaya, right? Yeah. Um, The law and gospel. Wait, wait, did you just say jambalaya? Yeah, I was trying to make a pun off of like it being a jam and then it being jambalaya. I thought maybe it was like how you make fun of me when I say bag. No, it's... (laughs) There it is. (laughs) I actually was listening to somebody else from the Midwest. I don't remember which show it was, but they they mentioned something about being made fun of because of the way they say bagel. And they said it the same way I did. I'm not an anomaly. I mean, I guess I'm an anomaly in the in the upper New England area, but oh, relative. I'm not a, an anomaly in an absolute sense. That's true. I mean, it's I all... probably am in, in certain regards, but not in this regard. Yeah, that's that's totally fair. And speaking of things that maybe are not anomalous, let's do some affirming and some denying. What are you affirming with? So I just have a straight up food affirmation today. So this is good. Uh, my wife and I uh, got to meet with some good friends today that uh, we... I see uh, my male counterpart in this friendship on a regular basis because we work at the same hospital. But we went out for lunch today at a local brewery, and I got a a hamburger with peanut butter and raspberry – peanut butter, comma, and raspberry slaw. So they called it a peanut butter and – a peanut butter and jelly burger. It wasn't really jelly, so it was kind of miss – misappropriated but it was just delicious if you've never tried peanut butter on your hamburger or cheeseburger just just do it it feels weird at first it feels unnatural but it's just not it's just delicious that's that's it that's the affirmation peanut butter on your hamburger 
That's good. I like the turn way that you... into a theological topic, Jesse. Yeah, well, I, th- there was there's so much there. Really, how much time do we have left? There's so much. There. I feel like, like this could be the whole episode, Jesse. <laughs> it, it absolutely could be the whole episode. But basically, every episode is you and I saying something that results in this could be the whole episode. Yeah. Like I'm sure people are tired of hearing that we just say that all the time. I, so I've heard of this before. I haven't done it myself, and I so think bad. because you said it actually in the best way, and that is. There's something that feels profoundly unnatural yeah. about this. Like I've got to go, and at the same time that I'm preparing the burger and putting maybe putting cheese on this and, and all the other accoutrements that seem to be classically connected with a burger, I've got to go into the pantry or the fridge, depending on whether we have natural or normal peanut butter. And then I've got to like go through a peanut butter process that usually is attached with me making like a, another kind of sandwich. So I guess I just got to try it all out was it a lot of peanut butter no no that? no it wasn't like slathered on there i mean it was enough to taste it it wasn't like it wasn't like a like a pound of peanut butter like it was just spread on there like you might spread mayo on a burger bun it was about that amount of of peanut butter yeah that's what i've seen i know that there's something about the fat content and it just offsetting like that salty kind of umami flavor against like all of the beef and the fat and the beef apparently it's amazing i guess i just have to I have to do it. This seems like the kind of thing though, like you shouldn't do at home without supervision. So yeah. maybe I just need to watch a YouTube. I feel like next time you're here, we should just go to this brewery. I mean, we should just stop. We just stop the sentence there. Next That's- time you're here, we should go to this brewery. But when we're at this brewery, we should, you should get a peanut butter and jelly burger. It was really good. Yeah. It's kind of like, I compare it to like the first time someone tells you, you could get a fried egg on your burger. You're like, what? That's crazy. And then you have the fried egg on your burger and you're like, I will never go back to not having a fried egg on my burger. <laughs> or like having coconut oil on, on your, your popcorn. popcorn. Yeah. We do that at least twice on this show. <laughs> In about six months, I'm going to affirm the peanut butter jelly burger again. That could be a whole episode. It's true. Yeah. So I've got an affirmation that I actually think you're going to really like. I'm hoping that I've beaten you to this one because... I found this recently and I'm pretty stoked about it because it's a kind of unique, both like professional and pedagogical tool. And you like to read a lot of articles. I like to read a lot of articles. Many of those things are in PDF form. And apparently now all I do is affirm things that relate to like machine learning or AI. So here's another one. So (laughs) I'm affirming with a website called chat PDF. Have you heard of this? I have not. Okay, so here's what this bad boy does. Chatpdf.com will allow you to upload any PDF up to 10 megabytes in size, and it will generate a summary of the PDF and offer three sample questions you can ask about the PDF. Basically, what this creates is a conversation between you, AI, and the PDF that you've uploaded. So I've been using this for a little while now and messing with it, And it is remarkably useful. So for instance, I have in front of me, I just uploaded an article called Understanding the Modern Monetary System. And it said, here are three example questions you might ask about this file. It talks about what is monetary realism or how does the monetary system in the United States interact with the global economy? Or can you explain how the monetary system can be used to achieve prosperity? If I ask any of those questions or any other question that I think is relevant to the article itself, not only does it give me a response, but it quotes a page number. It gives me some insight and some quotations. And it basically is a way to quickly peruse the contents of an article, especially if it's particularly long. And you just like to see, is it worth me actually going into all the detail 
to read. So chatpdf.com, I think, will be particularly useful for many people just because of what it does in trying to summarize a particular thing that you already have interest in. There you go. I have to try this out. So I just downloaded an article from the Journal of Evangelical Theological Society. Oh, they even mimic the chat GPT interface. That. That's a nice touch. So uh, I entered in this uh, ETS article. How in the questions, how did evangelical theological concerns influence the reaction to the lunar landing? So the title of the article is Fly Me to the Moon or Not, Evangelical Responses to the 1969 Lunar Landing. I don't know who wants to read this article. I don't know why anyone's interested in this paper, but apparently someone was. Did evangelical responses to the landing differ significantly from those of the general public? Oh, that's a good question. Let's ask that. Yes, evangelical responses to the lunar landing were influenced by the theological concerns, which set them apart from the general public. While many evangelicals celebrated the landing as an affirmation of God's glory with a cultural mandate, others were hesitant about the implications of space-age technology and its potential on humanity. This is discussed on page 2 of 14 of the PDF. That's pretty slick. I'm not yeah. going to lie. That's a pretty slick, handy uh, handy little PDF. I feel like I maybe don't need to read anything anymore. Uh, the, the AI can do it for me. <laughs> it's going to be like building a second brain, but like actually building a second brain. That's going to be Tiago Forte's next book, building a real second brain. Right. It's AI. literally like inception yeah. second brain stuff. Yeah. The nice thing about this to me is that it helps me to better distill or maybe like delineate things that are worthwhile. So it's nice to be able to get like a quick summary on some things and get a sense of whether or not the questions that come up are worth asking, whether they seem obvious, whether of interest to you, like you just did here. And if you ask those questions or anything else, again, you can type in anything else. I was asking all kinds of questions around the topic that I knew was or presumed was embedded or a part of this article. It'll give you all of these answers, basically kind of in the voice of the author, because of course it's pulling explicitly from this source. So to me, that's a little bit nicer sometimes than like just general chat GPT, because I'm getting to pick a source and I'm getting to have a more narrow focus on the questions I want answered or the topic I want to understand. So again, you can just quickly file this away in what an amazing time to be alive. You can completely ignore this affirmation if you like. Or again, if you're just interested, you have PDFs in front of you. Because the challenge I have in my life right now is there's just so many amazing things to read, aren't there? Yeah. Like, And the, and the internet like, is like trying to curate all this stuff. So if I know articles or authors that I'm particularly interested in, I found this to be like a helpful tool in saying, yes, I'm going to get after this or no, especially like if you get like a 50 page PDF and you're kind of yeah. like, just, just let me distill this thing down and see if there's anything in here that really excites me. I find that it being forced to ask the questions, which to me is better than the form of statements, yeah. is a great way to, to crystallize like the center of gravity of some kind of writing. Yeah. So, and it's helping me in my own writing, honestly, to think about when I'm putting together a memo where that's personal, professional, I guess I'm not putting together like too many personal memos, but like, <laughs> like I'm putting a memo together, like, to your wife, please, yeah, please uh, pick up yeah. uh, eggs at the grocery store. Attention, attention, Jen, please pick up <laughs> eggs at the grocery <laughs> store. It has come to my attention that there's a dearth of eggs in our <laughs> To household. whom it may concern. Yes. So I just think this is like kind of a, a fun little tool. So do people really send out memos at work anymore? Oh yeah. I mean, I, mean, I feel I, like I mean is that like the new is that like in the form of like a an office email that's just like addressed to everybody? Is that the memo? I think the memo now is kind of like the executive summary in academia. 
at least in my place of work. It's not the communication itself. It's some kind of expression of more detailed articulation of a topic. So it's kind of like, this is the presentation of a subject matter and it's consolidated to what we call like a memorandum. So it's probably taken on a whole different life because email is the memo these days, right? So this is more like a mini paper. We just call it a memo, or at least we do in my place of work. Yeah, so I suppose that, that's what I'm saying. This is like not interesting to anybody. That's one of those things that like people don't know what it, I, I actually don't know. And now I've got my own, my whole new research project for tomorrow. I actually don't know what a memo is, like what, what it actually is. I guess it's just like a statement from the company or from the organization to all of its constituents. I don't know. I think so. I think the memo like was the, was the precursor to email kind of, at least in that way that it was composed I and guess, meant yeah. to be distributed. Right. So yeah, who, who knows, but it's definitely taking on like a different flavor now. So I don't even know how I got memos. It's all good. I, what are you denying against? So this is really just an excuse for me to tell a somewhat humorous story. Uh, I don't want to get too, this could be like a really political topic and I'm not intending to get there. So could I'm, be its own episode. Could uh, it be its own episode? Probably. Yeah. Uh, I'm denying marijuana dispensaries in the state of Vermont. And here's why. So okay. this brewery that my wife and I went to, um, it, it sort of is in this little like complex of things. You, you've been there. So, you know, what I'm talking about, yes. there's like all these little shops around kind of almost like a quad area that, that turns into like a, almost like a patio for the brewery, but there's little shops kind of that border up against it. And there's this one little shop on one side that has like cheese samples and jams and sausages and stuff. So every time we go to this brewery, we make a point to go into this little shop and sample the, the, you know, cheese they have and the little sausage samples or sometimes they like jam and crackers. And so we were running a little bit early to meet our friends. And so we were excited and we got there and the door that we usually go in had a sign on it that said, um, please enter through the front. So we're like, that's a little bit strange, but whatever. Okay. Maybe they just keep this door closed. So as we're walking up to the door, I go, man, it really smells like marijuana out here. Which and then I go, but we're in Vermont and it's le like marijuana, recreational marijuana is legal in Vermont, so that's not terribly surprising to me. And we're about to walk through the door to this little shop, and I look up and the place is called Stone Leaf and it has a marijuana leaf, and the, our favorite little shop has now been converted into a marijuana dispensary. So my very very conservative Christian wife and I almost walked into a marijuana dispensary without realizing it. So. That's the story. <laughs> yeah. So I was just picturing us walking away from this and our friends pulling up, seeing us walking out of a marijuana dispensary and having to explain ourselves. So that's what I story. love is like the proliferation of CBD related items. Yeah. And again, I think people fall all across the spectrum in that both recreationally and for medical purposes. And I'm not getting into THC and all the, the all, right. all the different elements present in these things. This is merely a statement of, I think it's been done kind of poorly in many places because it seems like you can just slap this has CBD in it and everything now and everything from like lip balm to tinctures yeah. to gum. And it's become its own joke in our area because there's like, you know, those like little signs that people put up that are not of particularly high quality, like that they stick in the grass and they're yeah. just kind of like placards. There's so many of those around here and it'll be like, come to our CBD dispensary. And I'm just like, I would never do that because it seems like the kind of place 
you do not want to be just, it just yeah. looks so sketchy. And yeah, there's not, a place like, like that here. It's just called Barb CD, yes. CBD oil. Yeah. And it's just yeah. like a hand painted sign on like right. a piece of plywood that's stuck in the ground. You're like, that's a sketchy place. <laughs> and what I've noticed though, around here, the, the, the dispensaries have really like clever pun names. And I've actually heard, and, and I was, t- we were telling our friends this story and they told us of a story of another Christian group they know, another group of Christians they know who accidentally found themselves in another marijuana dispensary because the names are so clever. So this place is called Stoneleaf, which is like a really funny, clever pun. Uh, the other place, and we actually drove past this place on the way home, and I never would have known this if they haven't told us. It's called the Tea Room or like the tea leave room or something like that. And they had friends that were like, Oh, we have a tea shop now. And they went in there and they're like, this is not tea. This is a different kind of, of grass or a different kind of leaf. So <laughs> you, you got to double check the place you're going in Vermont. Cause there's a lot of, a lot of weed being sold in Vermont. That's true. I mean, Vermont is a wonderland in itself. Hopefully we have some brothers and sisters who are hanging out and listening in yeah. Vermont or from Vermont, but it is, its own little country. That is for sure. It's true. Yeah. You can cross on double yellow lines in Vermont, which is insanity to me. Yeah. It's just chaos. You just do whatever you want. You just get a Subaru and you go to Vermont and you do whatever you want. But also don't do anything that the government doesn't tell you you can do. It's a very strange world. It's both, it's both extremely, extremely liberal. And also the government, uh, the government controls everything, but then also, do whatever you want whenever you want to. It's a very strange place. It's a silly place. A silly place. Yeah. Silly Vermont. It's a silly place. So silly. I remember when in the height of COVID, it was like when you drive across the state line, there would be like big signs that was like, if you're not wearing a mask, don't get out of your car. <laughs> and it's like, oh, oh, this we're going to do this now. So, And I was very pro-mask. So I was like, fine, I've got my mask. But it was like there was signs that they put on the road in like the freeways that were like, keep driving. If you're not going to wear a mask, get out of our state. And I was like, dang, wow. I thought you were going to say instead, like as soon as you crossed over the border, a mask just appeared on your face. You're like, where did this even come from? The police stop you and they glue one to your face. <laughs> yeah. It's true. Well, that's fantastic. I get, again, I highly recommend that our listeners, if you're in the continental U S or even outside, Come hang out in New England. It's really its own place. And whereas you can sometimes create caricatures or, I don't know, general descriptions of states that hold true en masse, you can't do that in New England. It really is a unique environment. It's a lovely part of the world. It's God's country as far as I'm concerned. And there's so many great things to see. So maybe this is like a weird sub-affirmation just for New England. So whether you want to go to national parks, whether you want to see the ocean, whether you want to be in the mountains, if you just want to peep some leaves, then all those things are available to you. And it's like, if you love the snow and you want to ski, it's fantastic. Ski Vermont is good for that. I can say that for sure. Yeah. I will say uh, the worst time of year is leaf season for people who live in New Hampshire or Vermont, because it's like, it's tourists everywhere, everywhere. That's true. Yeah. That's it, another it, word that people make fun of me because I tour. say tourists and other people say tourists. Yeah. I think you just, you just have like really strong fidelity to like the actual pronunciation of that. Yeah. yeah. Do we you should say do tour? a pod? Yeah. Tour. 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 Yeah. It's not tour. That's <laughs> T-O-O-R, not T-O-U-R. 
I feel like we could we could do a whole episode on all the weird words that I say correctly that everyone else thinks is wrong. Well, how do you, how do you say a u n t? Aunt. Okay, you do say it. now. Some people that's split in New England. I, I, I would say it, where where I live now, it's just aunt. In most places in, in the Midwest, it's mostly aunt. I think. Yeah, but I say aunt. Yeah, I, I mean you have to provide. Yeah. Some... You don't say you don't say when you're trying to say autumn. You don't say Adam. Yeah. Just just pronounce the letters English. the way they're written, people. English. It's just a well, let me so I don't have a this just reminded me, I don't have a real high denial on this one for whatever reason. But I do have can I sneak a second affirmation in? Let's do it. Okay, so here we go. I was watching this today. I've actually been drawn back to this YouTube channel a couple times just for some reason because I find it hilarious. I'm gonna affirm with this YouTube channel called Jolly. It's two English dudes that more or less they go around and try like all kinds of food they basically immerse themselves in different cultures and then they remark about it but they have this whole series of recently we had a chance to go to la are somehow connected to a private i would say like elementary middle high school in england and they have students try like american food and, we reached and then out they just record the reactions and i watched one this morning where they gave them biscuits and gravy like american biscuits and yeah. gravy and just blew these kids' minds. <laughs> and it was hilarious to watch because, of course, their initial reaction was, that's not a biscuit. Also, that's not gravy. It looks gross. And then they tried it. And they were like, why does this taste so delicious? And then they were like, well, you know what Americans have in the South with this. And they were like, what? Fried chicken. And then they brought a plate of fried chicken. And <laughs> these just, kids just wept with joy. Yes, it, exactly. It was amazing. So they won about like American Thanksgiving. Well, they have them try like Thanksgiving foods. It's just like a super fun. There's, all, there's an episode where they try Girl Scout cookies. And again, to wrap this all the way back to your original affirmation, apparently in most of Europe, especially in England, peanut butter is not prized as part of like the dessert palette. So they were going through all of these Girl Scout cookies. They'd rank them by popularity. And when they were getting to the peanut butter ones, again, they were just like losing their minds. Yeah. I, I think... One thing Americans do exceptionally well is make sweet and confectionery items. Yeah, and so yeah, sure. they were just blown away by that. The only thing, of course, that they really disparaged was the shortbread and yeah. perhaps for good reason. Yeah. But everything else, they were like, what is a Samoa? What is a Tagalog? And part of me was like, I don't know myself. So they're try just, it. They're delicious. Yeah. So Jolly is the name of the YouTube channel. And it's just like good natured fun. It's clean and it's just super funny to watch these really entertaining guys like go to chick-fil-a for the first time and experience it it's yeah. just really entertaining girl scout cookies are one of those things that if you put them in front of me i will continue to eat them until i vomit one time i i used to work for best buy for the geek squad and i one summer i was part of what at the time was called geek squad academy or geek squad summer academy and we would go we would go to these um, events we'd put on events usually for young women, uh, like little girls where we would do like computer education, teach them about how to take apart computers, fix them, blah, 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 all that stuff. And we partnered with the girl squats one time. And so they brought with them like cases and cases and cases of girl scout cookies. Amazing. And it was amazing. And at one point I was, I was the lead for that site and I was doing my debrief with our, my counterpart on the Girl Scout side. We would always do a debrief to kind of talk about like what went well, what can we do better next time? And she kept handing me 
sleeves of Girl Scout cookies and I was just eating them as I was talking to her. We probably had an hour long conversation. And when it got done, she just started laughing. And I said, what? She said, you ate 12 sleeves of Girl Scout cookies. Oh my word. And I said, I did what? <laughs> and she said, this is a fun game we play when we have long conversations with people is we just keep handing them Girl Scout cookies and see how long before they stop eating them. And I was like, I don't even feel like I ate any Girl Scout cookies. <laughs> I, I felt really sick later. But at the time, I was like, I could eat more Girl Scout cookies. It was, fun. It was great. I think there were Thin Mints. I was just like plowing them down. Just give me all yeah. the Girl Scout cookies. For our, our international brothers and sisters who are listeners, just look this up. <laughs> yeah. Thin Mints really are, they should be illegal. Yeah. Or better yet, again, go watch this video on the Jolly channel. Go find it. You'll You'll easily find it where they go through all of the cookies, even ones that I forgot or didn't even know existed. There are a lot of them. So they are delicious. There are of all kinds of varied kinds and varieties, the spice of life, especially. And apparently if you're a Girl Scout, it's true. It's true. Jesse, are you ready to get into what probably will be the most awkward reform brotherhood episode that you and I ever going to record? I don't know. Do you think this one is going to reach that? Pro probably not, but it, it's a fun transition to make a joke about it. So <laughs> We don't normally have to do this, and I don't think it's going to be necessary, but given the topic of the day, if you happen to be listening with young children or even like teenage children or, or like your spouse and you just don't want to deal with the awkwardness, uh, this is the seventh commandment. Seventh commandment is about adultery, so we're going to be potentially talking about things like sex and pornography maybe and lust. So if that's not a conversation, I realize I probably should have given the disclaimer before I just said all that. <laughs> it's in the title of the episode, folks. <laughs> Uh, but if you don't want to hear that, or if you don't want to be talking about that in mixed company, uh, right. then this might be a good one for you to pause, listen to on your own, uh, before you share it with your kids or whatever. Um, I, I don't know how many people share this episode with their kids. I feel like we're supposed to do this disclaimer anyway. So that's, seventh that's commandment, totally Jesse, it, it's totally not awkward different. at all for me to talk about sex potentially with my wife's big brother. It's not strange at all. No, I wasn't even thinking about that. But no, it's super weird for me. For a second, I was totally dislocated from that, and it yeah. seemed always, always well. Yeah, you caught me off guard with that disclaimer because I was taking a, a sip here, and then it just came sucked right back because all I was thinking was, if for some reason you're listening to this right now with your Girl Scout troop, you definitely want to stop that. Yeah. Don't and don't grab don't. some cookies and go off by yourself and just process process alone. But yeah, I appreciate all of that setup, uh, except for the part about my sister, because <laughs> you know, we've been talking about the, the 10 words. I think we've been like particular about that. At least I have yeah. this idea that that's the way that really the Jews understood this directive from God, you know, these are originally uttered by the divine voice from Sinai in the hearing of all Israel. So there was this hearing, there was a sense that these were words spoken. And then of course, afterwards in the presence of Moses on Sinai, they were twice, twice written by the finger of God and the obverse and reverse of these two stone tables or tablets where we get this idea of like the two tables and then the Decalogue, which is our representation of there being these 10 words. It is a comprehensive summary of the law of God. It's the with permanent validity, and I'm trying to set this all up purposely because we, as we talk about this idea of what it means to commit adultery, both in its representation in this word, and then as the way in which Jesus unpacks it in his own ministry. But 
all these things have permanent validity or one might say they're eternally contemporary which is evident from like its nature in its content in the old testament and then the new testament attitude towards it and then it's further marked by this what i would call like really awesome promulgation from christ himself and then of course its location under god's throne in the sanctuary so what we have here is it's not just like moral rules of practice for your best life now there's something more behind each of these things which is why of course all of well so many of the catechisms speak to this both in the positive and the negative formation that is what is allowed or is to be promulgated in these commandments and then what is to be avoided or what is forbidden and so here again we come to just a couple of words because if you go just back as we have in this series to exodus 20 and you look at verse uh, 14 you're just going to find what five words you shall not commit adultery so i guess the first question is let's let's talk about what this means Let, let's just get out there both like the obvious uh, the explicit and the implicit here yeah so i mean on its face um adultery is simply when when someone has sex with someone who is not their spouse um, it's on one level, it's extremely simple. Now, simple, it is extremely sinful as well, but the, right. the, the command is not complicated, right? It, you know, there's kind of that, like that preachers, uh, I don't know, like truism where the guy goes, and what does this mean in the Greek? This is what it means. In the, and they just repeat themselves <laughs> and we, right. on one level. Like you don't have to dig that deep to understand what this means. There's nothing fancy about the Hebrew word. There's nothing tricky about the formulation and grammar. It just means don't, don't commit adultery. If when, when you're not married, don't have sex with anyone. And if you are married, only have sex with your spouse. Um, so that's the basic of the command, um, both in the positive and the negative. I think the, the positive is actually a little bit more complicated in that not only is it commanding us not to have adulterous relationships, but the positive would also to be to participate in healthy ways in a sexual relationship with our spouse when we're married. And I, I don't know that that's a huge challenge for a lot of people, but there are people that struggle with that who right. have had um, either have had sexual experiences prior to marriage that they kind of bring that, that, um, and dirtiness isn't the right word, but I'm kind of struggling that they bring with them the baggage that comes with right. violating this commandment prior to marriage. Um, they bring that with them into their marriage bed. And I know for some people that can be a real challenge. Um, I've talked to people that that's a real struggle. Um, but even, even those of us who have not committed that sin before marriage, we're still fallen sinful people. And we, we bring our baggage and the things that we've consumed in the world, whether it's television shows or movies, or if people struggle with pornography or, or any sort of material of that nature that comes with us too. So this commandment really is, um, really is, and always was from the beginning of the commands was about the status of your heart. I think if you were to pull out a single theme of what we're doing with these commandments, as we talk through them is we're trying to push past the sort of obvious outward, uh, execution of these or the outward uh, embodiment of what these mean, trying to push through to what does this mean for the inner life of the person? So what, is, what does it mean 
in our inside, in our hearts and souls and minds, in our inner life and the thought life and the, the spiritual life of a person, what does this now mean for us? Um, there, I think there tends to be this perspective that Jesus like elevated this law from what was just a matter of external conformity to now it's a matter of, of purity of mind and purity of heart. But the reality is that was always the intent of the command. And as you look at the commands in the Old Testament, even the way that this is applied, and, and we'll probably get into this more when we get to the 10th commandment, but the 10th commandment also has a prohibition against adultery built into it and that you're not right. supposed to covet other people's spouses. So there always was this intention in the law that the law governs our minds and our hearts and our souls in addition, and maybe even on a higher level than just our outward behaviors. Yeah, that's right on because it's not as some might assume just for like chastity's own sake or for the sake of piety or for the sake again of not just destroying or bringing chaos into your life. All those things are true by extension if in fact we practice obedience to God's laws. But this one to me has like so much at stake and there may be some listening who have really, let's say, intimate experience on one side or the other of yeah. this particular topic. And what I want to say there is I think that this in particular is one of those words in which God is acting like a surgeon to us. A surgeon must inflict a wound to go in and do and make the reparations and then bind up that very wound that he yeah. has created. He does that in an expert way and in a particular way. And without the wound, there can be no hope for that kind of healing or repair. I think God is doing that through many of his commands, but especially this one. We know that God is pure. He's uh, holy. He is a spirit. He has infinite antipathy against all kinds of uncleanliness. And like you said, that is already assumed in this command. So it's not just if like the Jews were like recklessly going around participating in either like fornication or mass adultery and, uh, and adultery, but in addition to that, there was a sense that you don't get to that point except that the heart is unclean. And yeah. so just like we talked about out of the mouth, that expression of the third word in relation to taking God's name in vain, this is another expression of that toward neighbor and community and society. So this commandment has this great caution. That's what's represented in it. I mean, there's this preservation, of course, of corporal purity. We need to take heed of running on the rock of uncleanliness. Yeah. And so making like a shipwreck of our chastity, but not again for our own sake, but because we know that represented in this command is the mystical union that exists between Christ and the church. I mean, yeah. Paul is really outspoken about that. And so it isn't just like, we look at marriage and say, oh, you know what marriage is kind of like? Isn't this odd? It's kind of like what Paul talks about. The church. Yeah. It's the other way around. It's God giving us this manifestation in our relationships that is implicit in marriage to say, do you know what Christ the church is like? It's like marriage. If yeah. you want to understand what Christ and the church are like, I'm giving you a type already that's part of the fabric of your society, and that is marriage. So properly practiced, understood, and promoted, all of which God does. He ordains, he protects, he is quick to support, is this idea of marriage. So to me, like we have something, I think you've already mentioned, like tacitly implied, and then there's something expressly forbidden. The thing that's implied is that the ordinance of marriage should be observed. And what I like is like even Martin Luther, I think in his catechism, like rails against the Catholic church for purposefully trying to yeah. isolate some kind of spiritualism away from the marriage bed and the marriage relationship. So when we, when Paul says like, let every man have his own wife and let every woman have her own husband, or like in Hebrews 13, the marriage bed is to be honorable and undefiled. 
it's just a reflection of the fact that God instituted marriage in paradise. He brought the woman to the man. He gave them each other in marriage. And Jesus Christ honored marriage with his presence. The first miracle he brought was in a marriage. And when he turned the water into wine, of course. And marriage is a type and resemblance of the mystical union between Christ and the church, which to me is why it, it's, it shows up in the 10 words. Yeah. Because God is saying from the very beginning, you must and should look beyond this, both ahead and to see in Christ this representation that is of such a high pedigree, of, of such great importance that just to really say what's well, a moral obligation is to miss the whole point. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, I, I'm glad that you brought up the typology of of marriage as a picture that God gives us of Christ's union with the church. More more than a picture. But at, right. at a minimum, it's a picture. And, you know, this actually, I don't want to get too far into it because we talked about it before, but this actually is why that article by Josh Butler was so offensive. Um, the article where he directly compared um, sexual intimacy between a man and his wife with Christ's indwelling of the church by his spirit, like very directly um, and crassly. Um the reason that's so offensive is not just because it was grotesque and it was kind of kind of gross and awkward. It was offensive because of those things. But the reason it was so offensive was because it was taking what Christ gives us, this image that God actually gives us in the church, and distorts it into this sort of like carnal fashion. And, and I, I think there's something to be said, too, is that, you know, we talk about the first table of the law. And, and in certain senses, the second table of the law has a similar kind of like mirrored structure. And, you know, when you look at the, the Old Testament, the, the, chief, um, the chief first table violation that the people commit was a violation of the first commandment, right? There's this idolatrous impulse among God's people of Israel to chase after other gods. And so that, that first commandment is violated and then it flows out into ways that they violate it by violating the second, third, and fourth commandment, which are kind of like summaries or subsets of that first commandment. But what, what I've noticed as I've read the old Testament is that the, the seemingly chief sin that the people commit in reference to the second table of the law is adultery. Right. And it's, it's no mistake then that God, that God compares and calls adultery and idolatry, the same thing in reference to what his people exactly. are doing to him. So we really have to understand that this commandment is about fidelity to our spouses and that fidelity to our spouses, um, or if we're not married, fidelity to not having a spouse, I guess, fidelity to the requirements of being single, that fidelity is a picture of the fidelity that we're supposed to have for, for God. So it flows both directions, right? God's faithfulness to us is imaged in the faithful husband who does not run around on his wife. He sacrifices for her. He takes care of her. Even when she's unfaithful, he, he doesn't give her what's coming to her right? He's still long suffering. Eventually in the old Testament, eventually God divorces Israel, but he still restores her, right? We have the whole book of Hosea talking about that. And he restores her when Christ comes. We can get into all that in a different episode, but this idea that adultery is simply just about this external manifestation. Um, I, I don't know a lot of Christians who, who outwardly think that way, but a lot of times when we hear conversations about things like, what are the things we watch? are we okay watching something like game of Thrones or, um, you know, watching shows that have a lot of sex scenes or making, making jokes, um, making light of sexual content and things like that. Um, a lot of times 
people act as though it really is just about the external manifestations. As long as I don't actually have sex with someone who's not my spouse, I can watch all these things and I can make all these jokes and I can participate in the culture in these ways as long as I don't actually do the thing. Well, the point is that if you are participating in the culture in these ways, you've already done the thing. Now, it's not my job to like pick through every single television show that any particular person could watch and say, oh, there's a, there's a nude scene there. Therefore, you're automatically sinning by watching it. I, that's that's a decision that everybody has to make. I think that something like Game of Thrones where, where the nudity and the sex is just straight out glorified and it's it's just gratuitous and unnecessary – that, that to me isn't a question mark. Um, the other stuff, I think there are times that people need to make that decision for themselves. It's not my job to do that. But we have to get to the heart of the matter. Why is it that we feel like we need to watch these shows in order to get entertainment? Well, is that coming out of a heart that is regenerated and has this desire for chastity? Or is it coming from a heart that is not, not desiring chastity? It's not desiring purity. I think that's the kind of the underlying question we need to ask with this, uh, with this commandment. Yeah, to my mind, the commonality between idolatry and adultery is, in fact, this idea that you're turning away from a promise. So we could say like, explicitly in the case of marriage, you're turning away from vows and promises that were made in the presence of God and others. But more than that, like in idolatry, you're turning away from the promises of God. You're really forsaking those things and taking upon yourself judgment in that you are moving away from the one true God. So as you said, the special duties belonging to marriage are really just love and fidelity. I mean, just, yeah. those are huge, huge topics. Love is the marriage of the affections. And so that's why it's so important that Paul make that case for us and allowing us to see that marriage really is this type or shadow of Christ's relationship through the church. And more than that, God's overarching narrative of salvation for his people. So there are, as it were, like one heart, two bodies. Yeah. Love lines the yoke and makes it easy. It's the perfume of the marriage relationship. And so because of that, we have in marriage, as we have in Christ with his body, this mutual promise of living together faithfully according to God's holy ordinance. Yeah. And so it just can't be understated, I think, that marriage is this physical manifestation of this, dare I say, like at the lowest level principle. So that's why I think it's, you know, it's on God's heart. It's so important why he institutes it to begin with. It's not, of course, and I don't want to be totally cliche. I mean, it's not to make you happy. It is, of course, to work on your holiness. It is a possible a progressive sanctification. But even more than that, like all those things are fine. And sometimes they fall into this category of like the Reader's Digest version of marriage. You know, you hear pastors, preachers, Christian writers talk about, here's five principles to make your marriage more holy. And one of them is like a date night. I'm not like belittling those things. What I am saying is that we have in this word something more than that. Yeah. That what we have here is God calling us back to himself by the way in which we understand our marriages. And it is for all, pe all people, as you kind of already intimated. So for the married person, it is, of course, for you. It's very explicit. For the unmarried person, it is your honoring of this commandment is in saving yourself, in seeking holiness and piety and chastity in a way that saves you for that potential future spouse. Yeah. And in that there is a great honoring of God. So th this isn't like if you're just, if you're single that you can just let this kind of wash over you and say, well, it doesn't apply to me. It right. applies to all of us. Yeah. And it applies to us in terms of in the way in which we participate in our local visible churches and the way in which we ensure that the marriage is represented there predominantly 
that it is encouraged and strengthened, that there are proper categories for male and female, that we understand what marriage ought to be, not because we are trying to take on political categories, trying to be particularly rebellious or stand up against the man, but merely because we are concerned with God's honor. And he has placed a special portion of his honor and representation in marriage itself. Yeah. Yeah. And and I don't want to get all like Ben Shapiro on this because that's just not really our shtick. But, you know, the, the culture right now is pushing against traditional. It's been pushing against traditional marriage categories for a long time. And right. now now it's pushing against just ontology of male and female. I actually think all of the advocacy and the debates and stuff. I, OK, there's a place for that, I guess. People have a calling. I'm, I'm not I'm not here to say like you should or shouldn't be active in that. I'm not here to tell you what you should do if someone wants you to use a particular pronoun. That's that's between you and God and, and wisdom. But the reality is the most countercultural thing we can do to preserve the reality of what God has created is to just be good husbands and wives and to like reinforce that. And that has a huge, um, that's part of the danger of the destruction of marriage and the degradation of marriage over the past 30, 40 years. And I'm going way back before the onset of same-sex marriage and same-sex unions, but even like no-fault divorce and the prominence of divorce, that has this destructive capacity and tendency that has now, we're all feeling the effects of that as traditional marriage and all of the societal safeguards that that presents for people and provides for people as those are just wiped away. We're seeing all of the negative impacts of that. The answer to how we bring that back. And this is all swept up in the, the seventh commandment here. The answer to how we safeguard that and how we work to restore that is not necessarily in this kind of like outward advocacy activism that has a place. Like I said, if, if that's your thing and you feel that God's called it to you, I'm not here to tell you that that's wrong. It's not my job, but just being in a marriage and being a good husband and a good wife and raising children and teaching them about what it means to be a mommy and be a daddy and all of those things, that's going to have way more of a cultural impact than I think our advocacy and our, our activism could. And this is this is something that I think um, I don't think is a prominent thing that people say a lot, but I, I think we need to say it is most people should get married. I, th- I think most people in the church Marriage is is the outcome that God intends for them and that God is moving them towards. And I, I understand that 1 Corinthians 7 is in the Bible. So if, if we want to talk about that either now or in a different episode, we can. But the fact is that the vast majority of people don't have what some people call like the gift of celibacy or the gift of singleness. That's not something that God gives to most people. So even if we take 1 Corinthians 7 at total straightforward value, most people are going to burn with passion and therefore most people should get married. I think the person who genuinely is not uh, not called to marriage doesn't have any sort of desire for those things. I think that's what the gift of singleness is, the gift of celibacy. It's not, you know, uh, there's kind of a joke where like once people realize they have the gift of singleness, they start asking how they can return it. Like, I don't think that that's the person that Paul is talking about when he talks about the gift of celibacy or whatever, this gift of singleness. I think those people are very, very rare. Um, And so I think, you know, and the Westminster Confession or the Westminster Catechism says this, like, one of the ways we fulfill the seventh commandment is by pursuing marriage unless we have the gift, they call it continency, but the gift of celibacy or the gift of singleness, unless we have that, 
we should be pursuing marriage because God provides marriage not only as this picture of what Christ has done for the church and the union of God with his people, but he also provides marriage to help protect us from some of these impulses because it's, he's given us this context in order to be healthy and to appropriately express ourselves and to enjoy that part of what it means to be human in this very particular safe, guarded context. It's when we start to try to experience that and enjoy that anywhere, anytime with anyone, that's where it becomes a real problem and where it gets to be really dangerous. And that's not to say that like all sex that's had in a marriage is necessarily healthy. There are people who have really unhealthy sexual lives within their marriage. We're not going to get into the details of what that means, but there are people that don't have healthy sex relationships with their spouse. Um, maybe because they've brought in some of that baggage from their previous, you know, before they were Christians or even after they're Christians, people sin after they're Christians, or maybe it's some other reason, but that doesn't mean that God has not provided this context and this sort of safe Harbor for us to enjoy that part of what it means to be human in a healthy way that he's ordained for us. Right. It's one of those things where it's not less than something, but certainly more than something. Right, isn't right. It? That's why this thing is so deep and it's so difficult. And it's also so glorious because in every command, we have both this mirror and this window, the window into God's character, where we see all of who he is behind the precept itself. And then this mirror where we see, unfortunately, all of who we really are in our blemished state. Yeah. It where we see all of the odious colors of our sinfulness because the law exposes everything. It is a spotlight from which we cannot escape. And so I think this one is particularly tough. I think the average Christian, the person who has looked at this with any kind of severity, understands already that there's an important lesson for us in how we assess what holiness of life means. I think we've been trying to get at that all along, both in this conversation and for all the 10 words. When a person persists in committing a sin openly, something as visible or egregious or as marking as adultery, it's of course easy to pronounce a judgment on that person. But what about the person who does not commit open sins? And this doesn't allow for that to be removed from our ability to like assess in what's explicitly here in the seventh commandment. It's wrong for us to assume that they're righteous because they may be religious hypocrites. So just as a person, because of the Bible, has a Bible in their hands, doesn't mean that they have it in their hearts. And, you know, I think that God has been so kind to us then and making it clear that there is redemption and forgiveness. So somebody's listening to this and they've been in a situation where they either they've committed adultery or the one they've loved the most in this world has committed adultery. There is healing. That That is the great and pronounced promise of the gospel that yeah. God is healer, that Jesus Christ himself has assumed all of this so that he might provide the kind of profound healing that is complete and from within. It's an inside job, by the way, of the Holy Spirit. So that's what Jesus is teaching about when he says, like, you ought to pluck out your eyes. You ought to cut off your hand. That he is concerned with, again, like a surgeon who goes in and does these things so that he might bring about an ultimate regeneration, not just some kind of complete restoration. But when regeneration occurs, restoration must come along by default, yeah. by its own nature. So like there is great promise for us in this. Like I don't want anybody to feel like because the law is coming with this sharp edge, that Christ himself as the expert surgeon, as to extend the metaphor of the great physician, isn't using that sharp edge 
to inflict the wound that he might go in and extract the cancer as it were, and then bind up the wound so that there is complete healing and a complete saving, a salvation of the yeah. life itself. Yeah. He does this for us, but he must use, and he does necessarily use this law and in particular this word to do that. We can also note that in the goodness of God, we find that in the scriptures, the scriptures themselves are replete with adultery, yeah. right? Oh yeah. And they're replete with adultery, like more adultery than if you were a human being trying to conceive of some kind of religious affiliation or philosophy, more that you would, than you would put in right. because it is embarrassing to an extreme degree, except that God uses this to explain how he does this restoration. And in a way in which, again, he is explaining to us the full fidelity of his promise to his people. So I've had this like idea in my head that like, I don't know. This is obviously just me making things up, but it's me entertaining myself as I think ponder about the scripture sometimes that like all of the prophets are sitting around in heaven and they're introducing themselves. It's like prophet time. I don't know. Like it's a support group for prophets <laughs> and you know, they're going around. And of course I think inevitably the question would come up, what is it that God had you do in your ministry? And you know, like Moses is talking about leading the people out and he's like, listen, I was in like Pharaoh's household and then I murdered a dude and you know, God arrested yeah. me and saw the burning bush. And I just feel like everybody's talking about this great burden and weight that God gave them. <laughs> and then it gets to Hosea. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And you know, there's something in there that's like ultimate. There's something in that, honestly, that feels so weighty and of such a great burden that it, in many ways, it almost puts all the others to shame. I can only imagine the prophetic response to him sharing what God directed him to do and how he used that as more than just a profound illustration, but a representation and more of his love for his people, like his yeah. ability to like not forsake them and the, the promise in Christ that Christ would be forsaken so that those who have committed adultery might be brought back into family with full restoration and reprised and reaffected and regenerated affection. So like all of this is just in the seventh commandment. Like we could just keep going on and on and on. But I want to affirm that in the seventh commandment is the prohibition. And through that prohibition for those who have found themselves on one side or the other of that, there is always in every way healing through Christ. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's interesting too. You know, there, there's a lot you can take, um, you can take kind of what I'm about to say. You can take the methodology too far, but the book of Genesis, which I, we, we talked about this when we talked about creation, I, the book of Genesis is is more or less straight history as far as I'm concerned. I don't take an allegorical or metaphorical view. But the Bible, when it's telling historical accounts, is doing so uh, with the intention of teaching theology. So we understand this when we read the Gospels. We understand that the Gospel writers organize certain things in certain orders to make a theological point, even though it's a historical document. What I find interesting is that when you read through the early chapters of Genesis, right, other than the, the very first sin of eating the forbidden fruit, of eating the knowledge of the knowledge of tree of good and evil, the first sin that is is um, recorded is the murder of, of Abel by Cain. The second sin that is recorded is the uh, poly polygamy of Lamech, right? right. So, so we have, even in the opening chapters of Genesis, we see that one of the first things that humanity does is start killing each other. And one of the second things that it starts doing is abusing each other sexually, right? Lamech, t Lamech kills a man, but then he also takes two wives, right? And then we get to Noah. 
the first thing we don't know exactly what it means that you know ham saw the nakedness of his father right we don't really fully understand and know exactly what that means some scholars will take that just to to mean that like ham went in and Noah was laying on the ground naked and ham like looked at him and laughed at him and mocked him some will take that a, a, a far more sexualized way i don't i don't know that i have a firm standing on it but whatever it is it's intended to convey that something inappropriate was done in relation to this sort of intimacy it's a violation of the seventh commandment. If we want to use that language, this is replete throughout the entire Bible. Like I said, the very first thing that humans start to do is to kill each other. And the second thing they do is to start to abuse each other in relation to their sexuality. So it's, it's, it's sometimes I think, um, I think that Christians can fall into the trap of thinking that this sin is one of the sins that's kind of like out there in the world. And yeah, people people do it in the church once in a while, but for the most part, this is out there. The reality is that not only is it in the church, which we've seen drastically in, in recent years with lots of sexual abuse scandals and high-profile pastors who are involved in sexual scandals and things like that, but it's not just in the church, it's in our hearts. It's it's endemic, it's endemic in the human condition that we will externalize uh and, and objectify and sexualize other people. We've been doing it since the very beginning of humanity. And this is one of those things that we can't escape. It's not, it's, it's like when we talked about the third commandment, it's hard to conceptualize living in a world where human sexuality is not thrown at us and abused every almost every second of every day. Like you can't watch a commercial without human sexuality being monetized and abused and thrown at you. You can't watch you can't watch Disney Plus without some sort of sexualized agenda being tossed at you. Um, it's very rare to be able to watch any sort of mainstream television without whether it's it's um, the sort of LGBTQI plus agenda or whether it's just straight out sexualized content. It's everywhere. We can't avoid it. And so that's why I think it's so important for us Christians, for us to sort of like recognize that we have to get our, we, we can't control the externals. We can't control, we, we can control on some level, like what we watch on television, but you, you could be watching something totally innocent and a commercial for lingerie comes up and all of a sudden there's all these like half-dressed women in front of you and you can only change the channel so fast. Right. But once, once that image is in your head, that image is in your head and I'm speaking as a guy. So I'm in my mind, I'm thinking of the things that are, are tempting and, and oriented towards guys. Women have their own sexual challenges and less challenges that I'm not going to try to speak to, but, but women struggle with this too. We have to get the internals set. That's where it has to start because it's never going to be the case that an adult human being can be exposed to sexual content and not have a reaction to it. It's hardwired into our brains. It's it's part of the corruption of sin that we just respond to it, usually in a sinful fashion. But if we can get our hearts right, if we can, if we can, with the spirit's aid, allow him and, and strive towards that transformation and perfection that we are promised ultimately not in this life, but progress is promised in this life. If we can get our heart attitudes and our minds right, as right as we can, then those things that affront us and assault us, they don't have as much foothold to grab onto. 
And again, it's never going to be the case that you can have an utterly neutral reaction. So when I hear people say that, like, well, I can watch Game, I'm using Game of Thrones because that one is the most egregious, but I can watch Game of Thrones and I can see the sex scenes. It just doesn't really affect me. You're either lying to yourself or you're lying to me. But the fact that it's in front of you and that it's happening, it affects you. It definitely affects you. But we can mitigate how much those effects have on us by really building a stronghold. I mean, what is, I don't know that it's it's Job, I think. I'll, I'll make a covenant with my eyes that I might not look upon a woman, yes. right? Like, that's what we need to do. And it's not just about the eyes, that the eyes being sort of like this metaphor for how we appropriate external stimulus or this, not a metaphor, but this this symbolism. That's what we need to do. And that's really what the seventh commandment is about. It's not just about don't commit the physical act of adultery. It's about get your heart right. Get your heart right so that when the things in the world come at you, there is some sort of safeguard. There's some sort of resistance that you've built up to push back against them. Yeah, there's so much there. And again, I hate to say it, but this could be its own episode. I mean, so it was its own episode. It was its own episode. And it could be <laughs> another episode where we just yeah. go into this. I, I think, you know, we so badly want to talk about all the things that we think might be practical as you already started to enumerate. And the bottom line is, I think what's most helpful, at least for me, is having this turn of mind where we start with God has a design for marriage. It's right. his marriage. It's his design. And it's his prerogative. And so because it is in every way a representation of his love for his people, explicitly manifest in Christ and the church, this commitment and this covenant, that it's better to start there. Let's not start with cheaper versions of this where it's like we just need to, for piety's sake or for chastity's sake, do this thing and honor this command and be better at loving one another. All those things are true, but they're the tail and not the dog. Right. And what we really need is to, I think, at least for me, ask that God would continue to transform our minds, renew them by his word to understand that marriage is so much more than that. And what's at stake here is a testimony that is a visible representation of our God who is spirit and his love and relationship with his church. And I think when we do that, it hopefully will start to shape the way in which like our entry point into these conversations. And then by extension, what we do, each of us, in a varied way to make sure that we support that. So, you know, for some, it may look like a date night. For all of us, it's going to look like cultivating. Yeah. But I think to your point, it starts with the heart. And that really is what God is after here. And we know, well, I can only speak for myself. I know that my heart is like, a cage of unclean birds. Yeah. And so what I really need is continually to remember my baptism, to think about this positional sanctification, but also to rely on God for the progressive sanctification that he's working out in me because he has promised it to be so. Yeah. So that's where we have this lovely kind of confluence of the fact that we are cut and convicted by the law. And then it leads us ultimately to this amazing gospel message in which we find the answer to, I guess, going back to chat PDF, if we threw the Bible in there, what did Jesus do? Everything. Yeah. And it's already done. So I, I want to make sure that we end on this high note of forgiveness and restoration for all of these commands, but especially for this one, because I think many have felt the weight of this or they're interacting with neighbors, believers, and unbelievers who have been affected by adultery. And of course, we're we're saying, and maybe it goes without saying, but I'll just say it anyway, of course, like adultery hurts children. It undermines the fabric of society. It destroys relationships. It breeds chaos rather than order. All those things are true. 
But you know, loved ones, the really hard part about that is that it isn't just the physical act that does that. It's the heart reaction where it starts that does all those things. It destroys us. So we have to seek on our knees the mercy of God that he might spare us and preserve us and bring about a great harvest of righteousness in our marriages. And for those who are waiting for marriage, or maybe will never be married, that that same harvest of righteousness be present in their lives because we all have a role in honoring the seventh commandment because God gives it to all of us. And because we know that he gives it to us, that he will bring restoration and energy and support and wherewithal to see it through. If only we would rely on him to do that very thing. Yeah. Well, Jesse, we made it through. It wasn't even that awkward. It's just a little awkward. I mean, not, I guess not any more awkward than I normally am. So I guess that's no. Good. Well, I was I was hiding my awkward feelings since since the intro when you brought up <laughs> your marriage. Story. But yeah. but here's the thing. I you know I think it's important for our families in some ways to talk about this, or at least maybe what you're saying here, and I like this, is that you know, and you've been set free in Christ for freedom, and there is a freedom to talk about these things yes. in a safe place. And to know that it's okay. The world has made us to believe sometimes that this ought to be awkward and taboo and uncouth. Yeah. And instead, what we're trying to do is redeem it. Uh, you know, we're going to take back this thing that so much of the enemy has stolen ground on this. And for Christians who are trying to process this rightly, so whether you're a dude or you're a woman, you ought to find a place, an appropriate place in your church with elders, with other women, with other men, where you can appropriately speak about this and process it. It is such of such paramount importance that God embeds it in these 10 words. So to your point, I like this because you can just use us as an excuse, loved ones. Like you want to talk about it with your wife or your husband, or you, you find that you need to talk about it with your pastor. Just say, I listen to these two fools on the internet <laughs> about this. And, uh, you know, just reminded me that maybe I haven't processed it the way that I ought to, or that there is a lot of baggage here. It's a worth opening up the bags in a safe and appropriate place so that we might empty them out and instead fill our, I was going to make a really strange one. We can, we can fill our, I was going to say sex bags, but that's not the right word. Like we can fill, fill our sexual relationships. Wow. With the gospel. Wow. With the gospel, because God has always intended it to be this way. And I, I'm really in my own life, my own relationship with my wife, want it to be like I've totally lost Tony at this point. <laughs> I want, it, I want it to be like that. And again, like th there is good, you know, we can have good natured humor in the church about this when it is of the kind of, when it is in the appropriate frame. And that's what I'm saying. Like, let's just take it all back, loved ones. Yeah. Like, let's really talk about sex the way that God has ordained for us to speak about it as an expression of his loving kindness toward us and as an expression of his unity with the church and this like extreme covenant that he has with his people that cannot be broken such that he says when a man and a woman are married they're one flesh right that's just mind-blowing right yeah. so yeah. again this as we've said about 60 or 70 times could be its own episode and maybe someday we'll get to it but for now you're gonna have to stop me from talking because i love my wife i love that you love my sister as your own wife. And so because of that, I could speak for ages about this. Yeah. So what, what's, what's, what do we want our listeners to do? We always try to do like a call to action. Tony, what do we want them to do 
after listening to this, besides removing, if you can, from your mental vocabulary, <laughs> the metaphor that I just tried to create. Uh, I, I don't even know. I don't know where to go from here, Jesse. I, I, I'm having a tough time not making what probably would be an inappropriate joke. Uh, you know, same thing we always want you to do. We've got this really great Telegram chat. Uh, you can join if you go to t.me slash Reform Brotherhood. Lots of great brothers and sisters in there that just love talking about theology, praying for each other. Um, it's very low impact. It's very low. It's very unintrusive. It can be as intrusive and involved as you want it to be, or you can put it on mute in the background and just ch- pop in when you feel like it. Uh, we also have a Patreon. So if you're interested in supporting the show, uh, you can hop over to patreon.com slash Reform Brotherhood. Uh, you can support the show with uh, a monthly uh, level donation. Uh, we've committed to making the show free as long as we can and as long as we're able. And one of the ways that we ensure that this show is free is that we have a group of people who support us. So if you're interested in also helping make sure that the show is free and available and sounds good and is available to other people, uh, that's one way you can do it. And then the last thing you can do is we do have a website with all of our back catalog. So if you're new to this show, we this is episode 341. So there are 340 episodes leading into this. Probably just skip like the first 60 or 70 episodes maybe before we figured out what we were doing. Um, Those first episodes were rough, man. I went back and listened to episode one a little while ago. Oh really? We don't even like tell. We don't even like. We just like jump in with the conversation. It's like it's like somebody secretly turned on a, a microphone on a phone call of ours, <laughs> um, which is kind of actually what we were going for. And, and I'm glad we realized that that was a bad idea. But if you want to listen to more of us and you're caught up, you can always go back and listen to the back catalog. And the last thing we'd ask you to do is if you haven't done this, or even if you have, I think you can go back and do it again. But um, we are looking to see what people think. So if you are an iTunes user, if you're an Apple podcast user, uh, most of you are, we know that most people who listen to this podcast, listen to any podcast, uh, do so through Apple iTunes or Apple podcasts, go ahead and hop onto the, the podcast website and um, leave a review. Um, we would love it if you give us five stars, but if you don't think we deserve that, then give us what you think we deserve and tell us how we could do it better. So we, we read all those reviews. We take them seriously. We really want to hear what you have to say. Uh, I think that's probably, I think I've given enough space from the sex bags metaphor to uh, be able to close the show out. <laughs> Why would you use those two words again? Uh, I was over here just hoping that I could, the more I just time that passed yeah. was the more distance I had from uttering that thing. But listen, this is what happens, loved ones, when Tony and I get together and chat. Well, not all the time. <laughs> oh, Jesse, we got to just, just change gears. Just get it done. Just do it. My goodness. Well, listen, I, honestly, <laughs> I have enjoyed speaking about this with you, Tony. And hopefully... Again, my my what I would really desire from this is that this is a foil for other people to have their own conversations, to go back into the scriptures, to look at the creeds, to think about the catechisms, and then to worship God and the great gifts that he gives gives us, one of which is sex in the context of marriage. So with that said, let's honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. What if I'm fine?